I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. It's a lovely June day, and I'm walking in my garden, looking at all the plants. Most of my garden is very shady. It consists of trees and shrubs. And the Philadelphus is just coming into flower now with its lovely white fragrant flowers. Walking back up the garden, I can see the patio in the distance. The patio is covered in a blue smattering of Cyanophus petals. The Cyanophus is finally coming to an end. The roses have just started. I'm looking at my Perseus rose. It's got, well, dark spots at the base of each petal. It's a very lovely rose. And my winter bedding is still flowering away. I've got pansies and I've got bellis, and the new stuff is flowering. I've got some mimulus, a whistly vanilla that really does fill the whole place with a vanilla scent, and lots of lobelias and philiceas and petunias are all growing away. And the patio, like every other space, is covered with plants. Lots of cabbages and Brussels sprouts and cauliflowers all waiting to be planted out leaks as well, so it's busy, busy, busy time. It's June and our gardens are now in full swing. It's a wonderful time, that perfect sweet spot where we can take in the fruits of our spring labour while still looking ahead to the wonders yet to come. And so this week, we'll be focusing on what you can keep doing to ensure your garden flourishes all summer long. We're starting off with a Grow Your Own segment with Alessandro Vitale. You might know him by his Instagram handle, Spicy Moustache. He's back on the show to chat about the plants that first inspired him to grow, chilies. We're then shifting to the wildlife side of things. Entomologist Syrian Sumner is here to defend wasps' honour and let us in on what they're doing in our gardens at the moment. Before we head to the Blue Peter Garden at RHS Bridgewater, here we're doing the essential but often neglected job of checking in on our soil's health. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Chilies, which are part of the genus Capsicum, have been cultivated for millennia. In fact, there's evidence of their domestication in South America dating back over 6,000 years. They first made their way over to Europe, however, in the late 15th century after Christopher Columbus came across the plant in the Caribbean. He mistakenly referred to chilies as peppers, thinking they were related to the black peppers he used back home. From here, the fruit exploded. Within a century, chilies were mainstays of African and Asian cuisine. In fact, it's estimated that now about a quarter of the world eats chilies every day. So because they are a staple of so many people's diets, we thought, why not get expert tips on which varieties to grow and how best to grow them? 
Alessandro Vitali, aka Spicy Mustache, will take it away. So one of the things that I love about growing chilies, it's first of all the colors of the plant and every chili got like a different intensity in terms of flavor and yeah it's just an all-rounder and it's one of the first things that inspired me to grow food i literally went to a supermarket with a friend that used to live with me the first few months here in london and at some point we bought these chilies we were cooking and i sliced this green chili and I had the seeds and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to try to plant them outdoor. And I planted them in the balcony and the situation in just a few weeks scaled up and I planted so many things and the whole space was entirely saturated with plants. Growing these peppers, growing these chilies, it's an amazing learning experience because it's a heat-loving plant, so you really need to have a sort of challenge with yourself because in a climate like UK, we don't have a lot of heat throughout the summer. So you need to understand the right time of the year to start them and to place them outdoor, but also when to keep them covered and, you know, when to water. It's really easy to overwater chilies. It's always better to give them less water. And even if you see the plant kind of struggling, they are pretty resilient, so it will perk up as soon as you water it again. Around this second week of June, it's a good time to plant them outdoor, which means at least three weeks to four weeks after the last wave of frost is completely gone. And it really depends on the variety of plants that you chose. Obviously, the hotter the pepper that you decide to plant, the more you need to be careful about the temperature outdoor. So if you're planting a hybrid or one of the super hots, I would highly suggest to keep them in a greenhouse just because the temperature would be much higher compared to the outdoor temperature and they thrive much better. But if you're planting a simple habanero or jalapeno or scotch bonnet, that could be planted outdoor on the second week of June. And what I do, I amend the soil with warm casting, and that helps to slowly release nutrients and improve the amount of microorganisms into the soil so the plants end up thriving. What I do, I tend to mix around 40% of good organic potting soil, and then 20% of homemade compost, 20% of warm casting and then around 20% of perlite or vermiculite to improve the moisture retention and aeration in the soil. And by doing that, I noticed that over the years I had a great production of chilies. But obviously, like, it, it depends on, again, on the variety that you're growing. So this mix could work as a general rule of thumb, but for some plants, you should adjust the, the ratio. So it's about like experimenting and trying your own mix and using this baseline as a starting point. Over the years, I collected around 400 plus varieties of chilies. So 
this was because I bought a lot of seeds from reliable producers around the world, but at the same time, I used to do a lot of seed swap. So I used to send them home-saved seeds in exchange for other people's seeds. And I think that's a great way to interact with the community of growers. I ended up having a lot of varieties, mostly because there are not only the standard varieties that you find in garden centers, but there are loads of hybrids. And I managed to collect quite a lot of different things, quite a lot of different varieties. One of my favorite varieties, it's called Magma, and it's a super hot. It's a cross between two super hot chilies that it happened almost by mistake. And the colors are super intense. It goes from shades of orange, red, green, yellow, ending up in a sort of deep purple, red, orangish color. And I tasted it just at uh, the tail of it, and it was incredibly hot. But then there are other common varieties that I really like to grow. There is one that is called black goat wheat or Dracula in some places, but it's a super productive chili. It's a compact variety, so it doesn't really grow tall. And it produces loads of different chilies. They start from completely black, including the leaves, and then slowly they turn color, going into this deep, dark Bordeaux. And even the flavor is it's quite lovely. 100% I would recommend for someone that never tried to grow chilies in their life to start with simple varieties like jalapeno or scotch bonnet they are resilient varieties they grow quite well in uk and and also the more you save the seeds every single year the more the plant adapts to the climate so you will have a stronger plants every single year and more productive it's a super fun plant and you're going to have an incredible sense of satisfaction whenever you manage to start from seed or plug plant and harvest your first fruit. And that's what inspired me to grow food and hopefully it's going to inspire more and more of you to do the same. If you'd like to hear more of Alessandro's fruit and veg tips, be sure to check out his book, Rebel Gardening, a beginner's handbook to creating an organic urban garden. We've included a link in our show notes. I like growing chilies and I like hot food, but I have a terrible problem. My chilies are so hot I can't eat them. I don't know why they're this hot, but whatever I do, I can't seem to grow mild, tasty chilies. And I'm not the only person. My colleagues at RHS Garden Hyde Hall grow lots of chilies, but the chefs there can't use them. They're just too strong. So I'm going to have to think further. Alessandro's tips have given me a few clues. I suspect they need to be kept drier and fed less. I'll give that a go this summer. I usually buy a mild one like Apache, but even so, I can't quite get through it. And for ornamental use, I rather like the ones like Purple Dragon because they look so pretty on the patio, but they're even more impossibly fiery than the other chilies I grow. Right around now, you might start to notice the initial rumblings, or buzzing, should I say, of yellow jacket wasps. The nests are still small but growing by the day, and there's enough of them around that you might just begin to notice one or two drifting through your garden. 
Wasps, it turns out, aren't the enemies we make them out to be. But I'm ruining the punchline. So let's turn it over to an expert. Here's Syrian Sumner, Professor, Entomologist and Wasp Defender, to give us the scoop. So people very much only have one word to describe wasps, and that's that they sting. And this always annoys me because, of course, bees sting as well. But people have lots of really useful, affectionate words to use to describe bees, like honey and pollination and flowers and beautiful. But the only thing they can say about wasps is that they sting. So that always gets very annoying. And actually, the reason why that they only have this one thing to say about wasps is partly because of the yellow jacket wasp, which is the picnic botherer, which is the wasp that most people encounter in their gardens in the summer. And this wasp tends to be very irritating. It comes to your picnics, it'll get in your beer, it'll appear to chase you. And I think it's because of this kind of wasp-human interface that has given wasps a really bad name. But the reason why we don't appreciate wasps and we don't like wasps is because we don't really understand very well what they do. Most people will understand that bees are really important as pollinators and that they do good. And, you know, we go out of our way to create habitats for bees in our gardens and seed plants that are good for bees. But we don't do anything to encourage wasps because most people don't understand that wasps are actually really important in our gardens. They are our local free pest controllers. They are pollinators. They are biodegraders, breaking down debris, breaking down dead carcasses of pigeons and other insects. And because people don't really understand what wasps do, this is why we have this, this idea that wasps are just out to get us, they're just out to sting us. So I think with a better understanding of what wasps do in the environment, we can learn to love wasps in the same way that we do bees. So if we think about the common yellow jacket wasp, it lives in a society just the same as a honeybee society with a single queen and thousands of workers. The queen is the egg layer. She never leaves the nest after she's founded it and her first workers have emerged. And the workers who are her daughters help raise the brood. They go out foraging and they feed the brood and they enlarge the nest as well. So what does that mean in terms of what they do for us in our gardens? Well, these are foragers and they are predators. They're hunting prey, they're hunting insects and other arthropods like spiders and even dead meat like dead pigeons, dead birds, your barbecue sausages. <laughs> now, the yellow jacket wasp, is a generalist hunter. So it will hunt pretty much anything it can find. And that, that's good because what that means is it's very good at regulating insect populations. So it'll be creaming off the most abundant insects in your garden at any one time. So if you have a breakout of caterpillars on your cabbages or your lettuces, you can be sure that there'll be a yellow jacket wasp nearby who is happily bringing them back to the colony to feed to the brood because it's the larvae that are the carnivores. The adults themselves are actually vegetarians. They don't eat the meat, but they have to get their sugar from somewhere. They have to get their nutrition from somewhere. And there are two places that they get that. When they feed the larvae with the protein, with the prey, the larvae will give them a little sugary reward to thank them. And that's highly nutritious, and that's a major part of their nutrition for the adults. The other place that adults get their food is by visiting plants. So just like bees, they visit plants in order to get nectar. 
and it's the nectar that they need that they get their sugars and their carbohydrates from. And so wasps actually visit flowers all the time. They are what we think are generalist pollinators. They visit a wide diversity of flowers. So unlike certain types of bees, which are very specialised in the types of flowers that they will visit because they have got a particular length tongue that allows them to access nectar in particular shaped flowers, Wasps visit pretty much any flower that they can get their tongue into, their short tongues into. And so in doing so, they are likely to be transferring pollen from flower to flower. And so they're likely to be quite important as pollinators as well as pest controllers. So there's two reasons why gardeners should really appreciate wasps. So at this time of year, in June, the yellow jacket wasps have just got through one of the riskiest stages in their lives. The founder's queen has successfully reared her first brood, which are the workers. And from this moment on, you probably won't see any more of those big queens out and about, for at least for a few months, because they'll stay at home and they'll become dedicated egg layers. And her first brood, which of course are her daughters, are all females, and they will be her first workers. And you probably won't notice many of them, but you'll start to see these workers around your garden on flowers, maybe amongst your cabbages and your lettuces if they're coming up early, and they will be hunting for the prey in your garden. So it's in this early summer period in June that you might first start to notice those wasp nests, which are about the size of your fist at this time. And this is when the workers are first emerging. So they'll still be quite small, but they'll be growing exponentially. The number of workers will be growing. And this might be the time when you feel tempted to get rid of that wasp nest while it's small and manageable before it causes trouble in your garden. But my message to the gardeners is try to be tolerant of that nest. So if that nest is in a place where you think you can tolerate a fully grown nest at the end of the summer, then please do try to keep it. So for example, if it's in your tool shed and you're going there every day, then I'll understand if you need to get rid of that wasp nest. <laughs> but if you find the nest is in your attic or it's in the back of a garden somewhere, then I would really encourage you to try and leave it there and learn to live alongside that nest. Because if we want to really capitalise on wasps and their ecosystem services that they provide us with. We need to allow them that space in nature. We need to allow them to reach the end of their colony cycle to produce the sexuals, to produce next year's queens and the males that are going to mate with those new queens. And that only happens right at the end of their colony cycle in the autumn. So the summer is an important time when there's a switch in the interface between humans and wasps. We go from not having noticed them at all in the early summer to suddenly noticing them and, and getting really angry with them later in the summer. And yet it's only those last couple of weeks in, in August that they really do bother us. So if we can just learn to live with the wasps and live well with them and tolerate them in the same way that they tolerate us, then they will be there to produce the next year's queens, which will again, of course, be your pest controllers and your pollinators in your garden. Thanks to Syrian Sumner. We've included a link to Syrian's informative and wildly entertaining book, Endless Forms, The Secret World of Wasps, in our show notes. And now for our final story of the day, we're headed to RHS Garden Bridgewater. In our Chelsea Flower Show special from two weeks ago, we chatted about the new policy that all gardens are to be relocated after the show. As garden designer Charlotte Harris said on the podcast, I think we're past the days of Chelsea just being a big May explosion. 
In that vein, we thought we'd stop by the Blue Peter Garden at RHS Bridgewater, which opened a few weeks ago in May. The garden, designed by Juliet Sargent, debuted at Chelsea in 2022. It's a garden entirely focused on fostering a love of soil. As Juliet said, soil is critical, it makes gardens happen, yet we don't normally see it at Chelsea. I want to turn that on its head and encourage children to get their hands dirty. So at the relocated Blue Peter Garden at Bridgewater, we caught up with Caroline Williamson, leader of the Outer Wall Garden, to chat about what you can do to keep your soil happy and healthy this summer. We're sitting in the middle of the brand new Blue Peter Garden at RHS Bridgewater. So it's sort of bringing the soil up to eye level and there's a sunken decking area. Again, you're sitting down in the soil. It makes you feel like you're down in it and the plants are growing all around you. I think what I really like about it is the emphasis on making people think about the life in the soil and how much plants rely on that. It's vital to our lives, but we don't think about it a lot. We think about, oh, we'll go and buy a nice plant and do that and think, I'm just going to put it in the ground and it's going to grow. And we've got to think about, no, what does that plant need? That plant needs the soil to be healthy. It needs to be able to grow. And that's where the soil comes in. It's gone back a long time to like gardeners question time that used to be on the 70s or 80s. And there used to be somebody on that called Clay Jones. And one of the things he used to say was, you know, and I remember this as a child, was the answers in the soil or the secrets in the soil. So people would come in and say, you know, why is my plant dying? Why is this not working? And, and the answer would be the secrets in the soil. So that always kind of stuck in my head as well. That the answer to most problems with your plants is it's in the soil. Are they waterlogged? Are they short of water? Are they short of nutrients? So just how important it is. And it has so many functions. It absorbs carbon dioxide. It supports the plant life that we depend on to grow. It can slow down the flow of water through the system. So if you're in um, a flood zone, it can help slow that flow down as well. It's a living, breathing coat on the earth that we depend on. If you realise that the soil is not dead, dirt is dead soil. Dirt is soil with no life in it. Soil is absolutely full of life, it's teeming with life. And you've got to get that life into it. You've got to get the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, the nematodes, that whole soil food web you need in your soil to make it a healthy living system. So there's really good ways you can boost that. So composting. Compost is full of life. If you can compost and then put that compost back into your garden, you're basically inoculating your garden soil with all those microorganisms, all those beneficial fungi, all the beneficial bacteria, all of that you're putting into it. Mulching really helps as well because mulching just creates an atmosphere in the soil where those organisms want to grow, where they want to flourish. Avoiding, if you can, using synthetic fertilisers, pesticides, herbicides, things like that, because most of them are just kill everything in there. And actually, if you've got a healthy soil and you've got a healthy soil food web, the competition between the different bacteria and fungi will keep the pathogens under control naturally without you having to step in and, and put things into your soil. A lot of people, I think they'd like to compost and they'd like to much, but they're a bit confused about where to start or, you know, how do I go about doing it? So what I started with and what I think most people started with is the standard Dalek bin. And also people underestimate the number of brown material that you need. You need about 10 times as much browns, which is the carbon-rich things, which is the cardboard, the newspaper, the leaves, sort of things, as you do of the greens, which is the grass or your leaf mat, you know, anything that's green, basically. So they tend to put too much green in there and then it goes a bit slimy and smelly. So, you know, your newspapers can go in there. Bits of the cardboard can go in there. That, that's the brown. It helps to, like, bring in that carbon element as well. 
how I make my compost at home, because, you know, I've just got a normal garden the same sort of size as most people's, is I've got two of the standard Dalek bins and I put into those, I put in all my my kitchen scraps, but not cooked food. I don't put any cooked food in there. I don't put any citrus food in there. But just my tea bag, the peelings of the vegetables, things like that, they go in. I don't put in the pernicious weeds. Your Dalek bins won't get hot enough to kill things like docks and dandelions and that. But, you know, grass clippings, anything like that goes in there. Put it not too far away. It's got to be convenient for you to use. They do benefit from being turned. To make your compost, it's an aerobic process, it needs the oxygen. If it starts going anaerobic, you'll smell it. And then it's, it's a completely different process is happening then. What you want is the aerobic one. So by turning it regularly, you're getting the oxygen in. You're mixing it up and you're getting oxygen right into the heat where it needs it, not just on the surface. How long it takes depends on the size of your heap. We've got big bays here at Bridgewater that we turn with the machine and we can have compost ready in around, I think our last batch took 24 weeks from start to finish because we're getting our temperatures in these enormous bays up to like 80 degrees. At home, where you're not doing the hot composting, you're doing the cold composting process, I'd say be realistically expect six months. It does take longer. You can tell when your compost done because it's black, you know, it's mainly rotted down. People think it has to be completely tiny pieces, and it's not because, if you're like me, I've thrown all sorts in there. There's bits of branches in there, there's bits of twigs in there. So they'll still be intact, but you just sort them out. But it smells, it smells lovely. You can sort of squeeze it, and yeah. You can use it in terms of a mulch. You can put it on the surface because it is, it's absolutely full of bacteria, fungi, protozoa and that, and they'll, it's just like works as an inoculant, using it as a mulch. You can mix it into your containers as well as a feed, as a sort of top dressing. And as, if you've got something that's quite rich and wants a lot of nutrient, you can mix your compost in with it. It's too rich for things like seeds. Don't use it for seeds sowing. If you want to make your own seed compost, you need to do make leaf mould and make that up from there. I mean, one of the great ways, if you're growing things like your tomatoes in pots and your courgettes in pots, just mix it in with that. They'll absolutely love it. I hope that visitors come to the Blue Peter Garden, what they take away with is just an awareness of soil and how important it is, and go home and look at their own soil, see what kind of soil it is for a start, you know, start to understand it. Is it a clay soil? Is it a sandy soil, what have they got? How can they help that soil? What, what can they do to benefit? What can they do to make it healthier? You know, we don't own the soil. We're the guardians of it. We need to look after it and we need to make sure that it's there for future generations. Thanks there to Caroline. Happily, looking after your soil couldn't be easier. You just add organic matter. At this season, when you've planted something and you've watered it in, mulch round the plant, either with compost or with wood chips or bark chips, and that'll prevent weeds, which rob the soil of moisture, and it'll also keep the soil cool, and that'll improve the soil health over the years as well. It doesn't really matter how you add organic matter. You can dig it in in the autumn. You can apply it as mulch in the spring. All these things work really well. The important thing is to use quite a lot. So look out for leaf mould. Local stables are a good source of manure. And all these things will not only keep your soil productive, but it'll also support biodiversity in your garden. The mini creatures in the soil feed insects and the insects feed birds. So it's a chain of life that you can do a lot to support in your garden.
That's about it for today. But before you go, I wanted to talk about cost-effective ways to keep your garden colourful all summer long. The traditional way is to buy bedding plants, but people are wary of buying something that has to be discarded at the end of the season. So, although I wouldn't want people not to grow things like petunias and nicotianas for their abundant summer colour, consider also buying herbaceous plants, things like salvias and penstemons, for example. They're not quite as floriferous as bedding plants, but with luck, they should last the winter and be available for growing next year as well. And just to be on the safe side, you can take some cuttings in August and keep them on the windowsill in case we get another cold winter. Another thing that's worth considering are hydrangeas. Hydrangeas last for many years and they flower beautifully in the summer and they're excellent for borders and for pots and they make a very good buy too. It's true that they cost more in the beginning than bedding plants, but you've got them for years of any luck and of course you can take cuttings to raise more. Also, mail order suppliers are clearing their stocks of plug plants now. And there's some very good offers online for buying these plug plants that can be popped in and will give great late summer colour. Things like zinnias, for example, and cosmos are great plants. And there's even time to sow a few seeds. Nasturtiums and sunflowers, they have big seeds, big seedlings, and they grow fast and will give late summer colour. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening, and hopefully it'll mean we see a wider variety of chilies grown in gardens up and down the country. That's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets and you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.